Hi, everyone. Welcome to Such a Good Feeling. Today's guest is easily one of my favourite writers and producers in the world, capturing dreamlike soundscapes and telling the most beautiful emotional stories via some of the finest recording artists and singers you could ever wish for in a studio. So it's my immense pleasure to welcome writer, producer and renowned hat wearer, John Green, who is not wearing a hat today. I know, now that you've said that, I'm like, shit, I should, sorry, I should, put, um, I should put a hat on. But yeah. No, 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 it's fine. It's kind of nice it's to see hot. that. It's too hot, yeah. yeah it's too, yeah. I mean, even for you, it's too hot. But yes, I rarely indeed. see you hatless. Yeah, actually someone, uh, I was at a gig last night um, and my own publisher, uh, a dear friend of mine as well, a guy called Charlie Pinder, uh, I literally went over to him and said hello and he didn't recognise me because I didn't have my sort of silly bloody beanie yeah. hat on or whatever and I'd normally wear. So yeah, this is me uh stripped it's it's a lovely thing it's a lovely thing and where but where am i talking to you whereabouts are you uh so i'm in my uh studio in in west hampstead in in northwest london um and i've got a little room here as part of, there's about five or six of us in a, a place called hoxa which is run and owned by a, a great writer and producer called jimmy hogarth and he's got the main fancy room at the end of the corridor and um, us us lesser beings are just scattered <laughs> along the corridor, basically. That's nice. And and yeah. and you're visiting, right? Because you no longer reside here. Uh, yeah, technically. Um, it's an ongoing, uh, probably mostly boring for anyone that I talk to about it, but uh, an ongoing conversation I have with myself as to where I'm mostly based. But I have, I have now a home uh, in Nashville, um, which is a place I've been going to for, well, the best part nearly of 20 years, actually, but I, uh, which makes me feel quite old now that I've said that out loud. But I, um, I got a place there at the end of, towards the end of last year. And so now I'm kind of more actively there. But coming back here is still coming home for me. And uh, I love being in London. It's just, yeah, just, it's just the best city on earth. I know everyone sort of says, oh, New York's like, or whatever it is. Mm. But I think, I think we're, we're very lucky to be, to be where we are. We absolutely are. We absolutely are. Um, I'd just like to start to have a quick chat about um, the musical landscape of, of of your house when you grew up, as in when you were mm. a kid. What's the kind of, what's the soundscape? What are the sounds that you're hearing when you before you get a chance to really buy your own music? Yeah, that's um, well. I think like ne- neither my mum or my dad, nor my dad were particularly, well, my mum couldn't hold a tune actually, to be fair to her. She'd be pretty disappointed if I said she wasn't musical at all, but it wasn't, a, it wasn't necessarily a musical household, but we, it was kind of from quite early on, there was a lot of Springsteen happening, like, especially on like the, the school run, like my dad, but he would also like, he's not musical, but he would blast um, mostly, actually it was kind of like Tunnel of Love album which always had such an atmosphere to me, songs like Tougher Than The Rest and just, um, you know, Brilliant Disguise was on there as well. Just very evocative, very atmospheric sounds. And mum mum was more, and, and dad, was, so dad would deal with like kind of Springsteen and like the Stones. Mm. And that was basically what he had in the car. And then mum was more sort of like, actually uh, a Beatles stuff um, was big for her, but like Scott Walker and things like that. Which actually, for me, made a, a very big impression. Something that I've tried to has, has stayed with me, perhaps more than some of the other stuff. Weirdly, um, yeah, big stories and kind of landscapes. Yeah, and also kind of explains a bit of your, you know, the Scott Walker stuff, especially that kind of epic, kind of slightly dreamlike, reverbed, you know, kind yeah, of I mean, epics. I, I, 
Yeah, I, I guess. I mean, I, I, that's something I, I don't know whether I've achieved any, uh, any, anything like that. But I think that's something I've, um, I've, I've just naturally kind of been. I've, I've gone towards these kind of like almost cinematic things. Mm. And I just, I remember hearing that uh, in songs and, and and other songs of a similar sort of genre, like even like Glenn Campbell, like Wichita Lineman and stuff, like written by uh, the great Jimmy Webb. So songs like that, where it's like a mini movie for like mm. three or four minutes. I'm just, I am, I'm in basically. So I try, I try and do a bit of the same, but which doesn't always work if you're trying to write in the pop world, to be honest. No, but no. Sometimes what, you get a couple over the line. But. Absolutely. Yeah. And what's your, when you start to get into your own music as in you know start to pick up however in whichever way you you consume it i mean what are your first artists and bands when you're sort of getting into your teenage years that are you become kind of a fan of really um i think i mean early doors for me like the first the first gig i actually went to see was it was a pretty pretty strong start and my brother and i were very lucky um but we went to see we went to see the Rolling Stones on the Saturday. This would have been 1988. I think it was their Steel Wheels tour. And then like the following Saturday, we went to see Michael Jackson on the Bad tour. And it was just like, the biggest, it was the biggest baptism of fire ever. And I, rem- I remember the Stones running out uh, to start me up, as I think they still pretty much do that or jumping in Jack Flash, depending on what mood they're in. And the flames went off and I was just like, oh my goodness, like what is going on here? And then jump ahead to the week after and Michael Jackson is just like other, basically otherworldly. Mm. Um, and so that, that was really kind of what we were listening to a lot of. And then, like I said, Bruce, um, it was just, I don't know, I kind of magnetized towards those things and I didn't really veer too far away from it uh, for quite a while. And then I suppose growing up a bit, there would be ver- different versions of that. And then nowadays I would, I would naturally lean towards kind of like the killer's and, and Coldplay, of course, it is a, I mean, I'm so obsessed with them. It's actually potentially a problem uh, for them, potentially. <laughs> um, there's no restraining order as yet, but I'm pretty sure one, one is coming. Um, but yeah. That's an amazing kind of, I mean, it must have been really weird for you after that those first two concerts to then actually go to your first kind of regular band concert in a normal yeah. venue. Well, it, yeah, it's, it's anything after that is a bit of a, a bit of a come down, really. But I, I, I think... I don't know. I've I've always I don't know whether you feel the same, Stu. But like uh, when you're sort of like, you know, when you've seen behind the curtain slightly, as it were, of sort mm. of like how rehearsals happen and all the stuff. Sometimes at gigs, I get a bit I get a bit fidgety. I'm just sort of like, should we sort of? I get the information that I want. I'm a bit like I either want to get on stage and sort of get stuck in, or I sort of potentially want to go and have, <laughs> have dinner or something. Yeah. And I know that's probably blasphemous to say and and the wrong thing for a musician to say, but um some if a gig keeps keeps me uh gripped as it were then then it's the last thing that I, the last time i actually saw that had that feeling was actually well twice over the same day i watched the killers at glastonbury um and you were working with kylie um and kylie was playing also i think on the same day or maybe the day after i can't remember yeah that. yeah yeah it wasn't my most sober uh, experience mm-hmm. uh, those two days um that, and both those shows were just like from second one to the very the last last beat was like I'm in mm. like I want the energy coming off the stage was just like magic um, and that's kind of what I always want from a gig and if I ever played in a gig I was always trying I was conscious of like keeping people interested uh, which is I'm not sure if I'd achieve that but yeah 
I think it's um it's true. I was saying to someone the other day on on another podcast that they were talking to me about about this this interesting switch that you 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 could never have it, but almost like you know, they, a lot of people sometimes say, oh, you know, it must be so amazing to be able to kind of create music or create shows or do that sort of thing. But I always say it must be equally amazing to just go along and just enjoy them. Yes. And I'm the same. If I, I will try and dissect it or I will work out what they've done or how they've done it, or mm-hmm. it's quite difficult to just stand there and be in awe of something because it's kind of your job. And I was similarly saying, you know, the, the my, my most recent example of that, where I just watched something and was so profoundly affected by it emotionally, I had no time to do anything, was when I saw the ABBA show recently. Yes. Oh, you got, show, yeah, which was like, I, my brain, my everything was just going and I was spent 10 minutes trying to figure it out and then it just, something took over and I became like an audience member again. And yeah. it was really, really lovely. So I, I agree with you. It's quite hard to find that, but it's it's joyous when it happens, I think. No, that is joyous. And I can imagine for you, because you're like, you're you're across so many different projects that anyone you know, given moment that to actually just be able to sort of kind of just let it just have a kind of cathartic, like I'm at a show and I'm, I am, it's, it's, I'm participating as much as any other audience member. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's quite rare, but when it does happen, it means it's, it's bloody good. Absolutely. Yeah. Immersed, immersed. Yeah. So, um, when do you first, when did you first pick up an instrument? Um, I was about, um, seven years old and I, Though I had a couple of piano lessons, um, about two minutes away from from where I grew up, and the lady whose name I cannot remember, which is appalling by me, but I I remember she had about fifteen cats in the house, and like any time I was trying to do the scales, which is quite intense anyway. When you're you know you got mm. little hands and you're trying to figure out what you're doing, there'd be like cats like crawling around. I'm not saying I'm a cat or a dog person, but I'm probably more the latter and i was just quite scared to be honest. either way 15 is too many of anything way way too many i mean it's, it's insane basically and I, I unfortunately i think i think the lady <laughs> may well have been but the the um it was just a very frightening intense experience even though my mum you know stayed with me and stuff but i was you know i just it it wasn't a great first foray into like music for me so i kind of i think i did maybe a few more lessons left that and then my uh, my best friend growing up, whose whose mum was like my mum's best friend, a guy called Johnny Goss, uh, also a Jonathan. Even though we like grew up together, it's ridiculous. But he wanted to do guitar. He was a year older than me, so we started doing joint guitar lessons uh, when we were about nine, and then quite quickly just started jamming with 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 John and my brother Daniel, who was playing drums and um, sort of starting bands and playing gigs for our parents, like in the in the bunk bed and like you know. Ter- terrible standard but we thought we were fantastic right and what's what's the kind of music were you playing covers we were doing sort of like weird um so i suppose there were covers but we we the first song we wrote was a song called molly malone um and it was kind of like a sort of i don't know where we were getting our inspiration from but it was kind of like this sort of celtic infused buddy holly like rock and roll thing and it was it was i mean it it, it sounds as it, it sounded as horrendous as it sounds in, yeah. in its description but we we just i don't know we had this thing and then we had our second song was a song called love like metal which my my dad's brother my uncle leonard was like that's a really good song like he was because he's he's a very avid record collector and still is and he was kind of like our main critic uh but he was like that's a good song it's like it was like two minutes verse 
quick pre-chorus, chorus, same again, little departure and then goodnight sort of thing. And I remember doing that and we'd do these gigs and in, in the bunk bed and we'd get my, my mate John had a younger sister, Natasha, and she would like do our lights. So she would like turn the bedroom lights on and off super quick. You know, I mean, standard, standard yeah. stuff. But yeah, we were, I mean, we were writing very, very early on and loving it, basically. And um, presumably that turned into, you know, when you were able to get out of the bunk bed scenario, that turned into proper bands, right? It, it did. Um, we, we, we started like kind of doing, um, you know, there will be gigs at school, like a charity, like a fundraiser thing. And then uh, another dear friend of ours, a guy called Tim Jackson, who was like an amazing uh, pianist, uh, was, he was like a kind of a savant. He was playing at like the Albert Hall when he was like eight years old doing mm. these things he was one of those kind of guys so he joined the band as well and then we we'd rehearse a bit and we'd play at you know then we'd eventually play at like weddings and the mitzvahs and like all the, all that sort of stuff and then like battle of the band competitions and we we took it pretty serious it was it, the best part of it it was for us and i think that still holds true for lots of the great bands uh, we weren't one of them <laughs> but the it's a social thing and it's it's like what you do as soon as as soon as school finishes, like what we're doing tonight, we're going to rehearse. We're going to write some more songs. We're going to play and we're going to do a gig at the weekend. And it's just, it was part of our, it was, it, it was the entire like central force for our social network and our friends and family. It was, it was a huge part of our lives. Um, and still is in a kind of roundabout way. Yeah. Well, that gave you enough of the bug to kind of realize that you were going to want to, wanted to kind of go move further and, actually actually kind of study that and it it potentially i mean did you have an idea that it could be a job um in a way because i think when you're sort of doing gigs and and i mean my my parents were amazing and then continue to be just very sort of supportive and just like champion anything um that that my myself or my brother who still does music he lives down in south africa now my brother daniel but he also does music still but i think for me it wasn't like there was no real other option. I don't really, I mean, I, I feel like I could have gone into other industries. Like a lot of my, my mates have gone into different things and I, I think I could have got away with it, but I just, I woke up every day thinking like, well, I should probably go and write a song really, or I should be trying to be in that band or I should be pushing. And I think there came a point when we were maybe about 18, 17, 18, when it was clear that I was kind of going to continue and that everyone else was just going to kind of, leave it in the hobby compartment and like well grow grow up a bit yeah. <laughs> for want of a better expression so I, I i kept going with it and and got a place at at lipper at, at the liverpool institute of performing arts which is sort of paul mccartney's old prep school and the, the school that he's kind of uh funded heavily um up in up in liverpool obviously was that your your own were you choosing between two or three or was it very much like that's where you wanted to be that was where I wanted to be. Um, I kind of, I was just fascinated with the idea of that and and his legacy and his association. Um, and I don't think I actually applied for anywhere else. And it's not because it's like, oh, I'm always going to get in. I'm, I don't need to be. I just, I, I thought, let me try for that. And if not, I'll figure something else out. I'll, maybe I'll get a job in a record company or I'll, I'll just stay in it somehow. So I, that was in 97, I went there. It's interesting. There's been, there's a few of those kind of colleges and schools around and Mm. sometimes um, they will have varying reports, but I've never met anybody that went to Lipper that did not have the most incredible experience. It's got such a high 
standard of um of of teaching but also just encouragement as well more than anything yeah i I think at the time like any university or sort of collegiate experience i think it's they're at their best when you're you're just having a great time. You don't really know, you know, there was definitely moments when I perhaps wasn't as uh, attentive as I, uh, or my attendance wasn't as high as it should have been. But I look back on it now and I, I really appreciate like, cause I was doing like, there's an academic aspect to it. So it can get like a degree status, I'm guessing. But like I was doing a songwriting module for my last two years there and to teach songwriting as our, my teacher, a guy called Mark Pierman at the time, said he was like i can't teach you this and that was the first thing he said in our very first class and so we're all sitting there like right uh that's good we've got another two years of this but he was right you can't teach it you can nurture it and you can chat through why things connected with people at a certain point and there was only a small class there was only eight of us in the class which was great because we just basically wrote songs all the time and just were really honest with each other about moments that we connected with or didn't or, or slightly disconnected from um but it was an amazing experience and the facilities um in in no small part thanks to uh, Sapul were amazing was any part of that the beginnings of learning a bit about production as well yeah um absolutely i mean i'd, I'd sort of done a bit but it was very very basic up until that point um but they had all the the you know i think at the time at lipper we were doing Cubase and I'm not entirely sure what else would have been going on that point. And, and and to this day, uh, much to my uh, much to my disappointment and many of my coworkers, I'm not the most technical person, but I'm I like just to sort of run around rooms like this and have enough stuff to hit and be, have a way of recording them so I can figure it out afterwards in my own time. But they had they had all all the gear and that was definitely a window into how to start making a record and how to balance things out a bit and allow space for things. And which is something that I still struggle with because I like to, as we've said before, I like to kind of overload uh, the desk a bit and see what, see what pops out. I think um, one of the best descriptions of your studio um, that I've ever heard is it's one big microphone. Yeah. There is at any point, at any time, if someone comes up with an idea, it will be recorded somehow and it will be fixed. And it doesn't matter if it's like, as something, I was listening to an interview with Phineas um, yesterday mm. and he said a really good thing. Yeah, the take notes thing, which is really good. And that thing he said mm. about, um, it doesn't matter if something's technically correct, it's right if it sounds right to you. And and actually, it all gets it all gets things apart from you know the really central things that have got to be at least reasonably clear it all gets kind of within the wash of the mix and everything like that so you know the idea i mean biff's always a a huge lover of doing vocals in the room you know with speakers on and stuff like that and you do that as well but it doesn't matter because if the vibe is there and it works it's fine it is fine and i know that there is a time and a place for like precision and uh, you know, especially with the like hyper pop stuff where it's so super focused and it's like really stripped down to kind of like three or four like core elements of sound. But it's just, it's just not my, it's not, I'm not saying it's not my cup of tea. I just don't, that's not how I feel music personally. Mm. And my, my journey with, with production and, and with writing has always been about like, I don't know, just that feels good. That that moves me. Yes. And I don't really mind if I can hear someone like reversing the van outside the studio, which has happened a few times. 
it's like that was a great take and you can feel the air moving a bit and it's it's okay yeah and as as a result the listener i think was more likely to feel what you're feeling yeah a bit if that's a bit of i completely agree with that so what was your plan when you left lipper what was your plan for world domination what do you want to um do? i still i still haven't got one i should probably write that down or, or think about it but i i i didn't really have a plan as such but i knew that i just wanted to kind of keep writing and stay stay in it somehow and 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 maybe get on the road and, and gig in some form um and i kind of got to that point but not immediately i actually did take a job um at a record company um after i left and i was making like um probably quite average tea and coffee at a company called telstar down in in southwest london in mortlake and i was there for about a year um and it was a good experience i kind of there was lots of people you know i've i've since obviously met a lot of people within the industry as we as we all do and we kind of you grow up with them almost the people that were in like the in the mail room there and now kind of running different companies elsewhere and it's nice to have that connection but i i didn't enjoy it massively i just i felt a bit kind of like i just wanted to do a gig like what am i doing but you know i needed to earn some money and stuff so i kind of i joined a function band whilst i was there and i ended up leaving telstar and then basically gigging every weekend and playing back on the function circuit um and that was actually a great experience and a great i made some great friends but also when you play um you know waterloo every friday night uh, like a, a corporate gig or or you know um oh what a night you know frankie valley and all these things you understand why hits are hits and what connects with people and why people sometimes leave the dance floor because they want to go and get another drink like what keeps them there and uh, i'm not saying for one minute that i've achieved that uh, consistently as a songwriter but it's, it's a really good lesson to to understand why things work and why things some things don't work so well so what's the, what's the leap from the function band to actually starting to work with artists um i suppose like it's probably quite a, a, a natural one in that you sort of you're you're meeting you're you know for, you're doing the, the function stuff then you may be doing um, a, a, another dear friend of mine Richard Lobb also had a, like a pub gig um, at a place in Bounds Green and we'd always just used to gather there so we'd either be doing function gigs or we'd be playing in the pub and at that pub there'd be lots of local artists that would like rock up and maybe get up and do a song and then. You know, I'd always been writing the whole way along. Like even when I was up at Lipper, I, that was part of my course. And I think you just naturally, just I don't know, you just sort of, I, I kind of just met people. Not I don't spend my didn't spend my entire life in a pub, but like in social situations. And then suddenly you look at your computer or whatever I had at the time. And be like, oh, I've actually got like twenty or thirty songs here that have got something. Um, maybe I should play them to a publisher who does anyone know a publisher like you know and then you start that whole journey which is a whole other experience but you gradually just sort of chip away and play at some songwriter nights like it used to go a lot to like the, um tony moore's uh, cashmere club um in marylebone which subsequently moved to um the bedford down in ballam and just you'd congregate around other fellow songwriters who'd all had a very similar journey who'd all kind of either gone to college or hadn't or would like got a job and then we're in a function band but they'd they'd been doing it the whole time they had no one had stopped writing songs um it was the only difference between us and those people that were doing it who were like you know 
on the hit parade, as my stepdad would say, um, they just had a break, basically. Yeah. Something had become official. And was the at the beginning was the plan that you were going to be the center of the thing. You were going to be the either in a band or the 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 kind of the Chris Martin, shall we say? That would be you. Yeah, yeah. I wish. Um, <laughs> I I'm, I'm still imagining that in my head. No, I, yeah, but no. They, I you, basically yes, because I, I felt I could hold a tune and like. Why would anyone else want to sing what I'm feeling at this particular moment? And, and, and also, I think the idea even of co-writing at, at that early stage is also quite foreign, I think, because we all grow up. Admittedly, I was like in a band with my brother and stuff, but it's quite a private thing. Like, mm. I remember like sitting, like trying to figure out the guitar and I'd be in my bedroom like, I'm going to sing this over these chords. That's a very personal, quite vulnerable thing. Well, it was for me initially, but nowadays the idea of doing a songwriting session by myself sounds like insane. Mm. Like, you know, other, like why would I do that? I want to be challenged on like that lyric could be better, or I want to say to someone, "What about if we do this melody?" So, yeah, that's a whole, I guess, a whole other sort of compartment to it. But initially, initially, yeah, I, I would want to sing it, but then it became very apparent uh, as the years progressed that um i'd have to wear a silly hat um or <laughs> or you know which i did yeah but uh, yeah but you know what i mean but so are you i mean i guess it's interesting weirdly literally just before i spoke to you i just saw um your post about filth and alley who obviously mm. was um was kind of quite instrumental again at the beginning of your career with kind of giving you a break very instrumental and yeah it's i was actually pleased i was so i knew that we were going to chat today i went to see phil this morning just for a coffee and a catch-up and phil uh thornally he i met phil kind of as a result of all those other things that social gathering and like playing gigs and like doing some songwriter nights and you know in addition to doing some other session bits and pieces but i, I met phil and he had this space around the corner from here and kind of he kind of took me under his wing really and just like let me have the upstairs room like whenever i needed it just like come in just work like whatever you're doing just write some songs you know that stuff and it was a very it was a hugely pivotal time in my sort of songwriting life because i was listening to what phil was doing because he would be doing a session downstairs with like brian adams or something mm. and i'm sort of sitting up, you know, upstairs like how do i how do i get downstairs you know, um, I can go down as many times as I can during the day and offer to make average cups of tea. But like, how do I, how do I sit at the piano and join in, basically? And I felt like I, Phil pushed me a lot. He challenged me to write better and and write shorter songs and just sort of like, and and eventually um, he signed me to a publishing company that he he ran with a chap um, called Bill Stonebridge, and they their company was Dalmatian, which then got brought into universal publishing. So it, it started off as a kind of an indie thing, but then I gradually got brought into, I guess, the mainstream songwriting world via via that. But that time was huge for me, and um, I'm very grateful for it. Um, and it was lovely to see him today ahead of chatting to you because it was kind of part of that conversation. Yeah, really. definitely, definitely. Feel, feel for, for anyone that, well, anyone that doesn't know is so incredibly successful. I mean... Weirdly, again, serendipitously, I was saw Natalie and Brulia a couple of days ago at a festival, yes, yeah. and um, 
and and there she sings torn as as beautifully and brilliantly as she's always yeah. done and always has done and it's a song that has um you know was she's a fantastic artist but it's just a song that wasn't written for her but it was the yeah. right song at the right time from the right person and you know not i mean he's responsible for so many other things and as you said the, the cure notwithstanding but um, no i know it's amazing um and and he's still and he's in there every day just writing songs and just doing because he it's not because he can't couldn't do anything else ever but that's that's what he, that's in his dna and his wiring and i think that that idea of just like i have to write a song today and then it'll be a good day like and i think you just you don't know where songs can end up and it's always good to do the make them as good as they can be and finish them yeah basically finish them is a good is a really good advice what's um so when you are now in the system as you say in the universal Mm. system and they will start sending were they sending people to you were you asking to work with people i'm imagining lucy would have been one of the first people that you were working with then yeah so i so i grew up with with lucy silvers and she was like a dear friend uh from sort of like early teens i guess um and we were all in the band together. Like she would come and sing and all that stuff. And then um, she was starting to have great success and stuff here and, and in Europe. And yeah, we started writing a bit together. But it was all like all the best things. I think it was a very natural, organic flow. I, I'm not really the best hustler when it comes to like pushing myself into certain things. But like things just came around naturally. You know, I was in Lucy's band for a bit. And we ended up writing and then I was a session musician for other things and ended up writing and it was all part of that. But Universal were fantastic and they they definitely pushed me into rooms. But my manager, Mark Wood, was and still is like the main sort of diary keeper. And he he kind of is amazing at strategizing like, well, if we do this and you do a good job, then maybe we'll we'll get into this room and then maybe who knows you might get into that room it's you know it's not too machiavellian but it's you need someone like that structuring it yeah and i think it was interesting i remember when lucy first came out it was almost it was a weird one it was almost she was being kind of pitched as a kind of uk delta goodrum because she mm-hmm. played yeah. piano um but i don't think anybody was i don't think anyone was really quite prepared for how incredible her vocal would be yeah, because it is one, still to to me, you know, it's one of the most brilliant female vocalists this country's ever produced. No, it, it, Lucy's voice is unbelievable, um, and I, I see Lucy a lot now because she lives in Nashville with uh, um, her husband uh, John Osborne. He's in the band Brothers Osborne, who are doing great things um, over in the states. And Lucy's voice is just effortless, and we, you know, often we'll be round there and. Um, just to go, everyone just gathers around the piano and like we're doing it. And it's like, bloody hell. Like, she's she's really, really good. It's like, and, and I, I remember growing up thinking the same thing and I still, still, still think the same today, definitely. Absolutely. And she's really making, you know, after making, obviously there was still some great songs. I mean, some incredible songs on the first album and, and some of the, the Judy Zook songs as well, which is yeah. beautiful. But um, I love now that she's very obviously just loving, just making music that she loves. With no yes. agenda other than do I love it? Yes, okay, I'm going to make it. Yeah, and I, I think you know that that can sometimes come um, not at a price necessarily, but I think if you do that and stick to your guns like that, then something great will happen. Yeah, and I think it's very easy in, in the songwriting game, as it were, world, to be like, well, 
they're they're doing really well and they're doing things like this and like making all these beats or whatever it is. I, I can't do that. Um, and I think every now and then what can happen is that between yourself, your manager and your publisher, whoever you have on your team, there, there can be a desire to like throw you into situations and maybe not fully think like, but is that, is that where they're going to really be able to shine? Is that like the best thing for them? But you have to sort of be out of your comfort zone as a human being, I think, but as a creative to kind of surprise yourself. But ultimately, doing something that you really love. And I've been fortunate enough the past few years just to sort of have a few things, like I said earlier, get over the line where I'm like, mm. that's 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 me. It's not me only at work, but it's like, that's what I'm good at. I'll please I'll do a bit more of that. How do we find those projects? How do we, you know, uh, get in the room with people, artists or writers who want to do more of that? But it's um, it's tough. It's a very, it's a, it's a really tough industry you know i've been in this room all all this week the air conditioning's broken which is a separate issue but i've done like maybe finished eight demos and the likelihood is is that maybe something happens with one of those songs at some point but yes. that's not that's not a disrespect the heart to my co-writers or to the songs that we've written or perhaps to my demos that i've done but that's just the nature of the beast and mm. it's speculative yeah it's tough it is. You just got, it, got to keep going. Got to keep going. So, what's you've, you've mentioned it briefly, and obviously, there's a there's a bunch of songs that uh, it, it, in your catalogue that um, have, for want of a better word, a, a country edge. And um, what's mm. when was the first time you went to Nashville, and how did you find it? Um, I first went to Nashville, so it was about twenty. Uh, it was like early twenty fourteen, I think, or late twenty thirteen. And another, you know, serendipitous situation that happens a lot in this in this in this industry. I'd met uh, a songwriter, a guy called John Peppard, lovely man from um, Northern Ireland, but he lived in Guildford, uh, in Dorking, uh, at a gig, at like the Cashmere Club, like a songwriter's gig. And I played a gig, and he was like, "Oh, we must write." So I went to his house like the next week, wrote a song, um, and he'd just come back from Nashville. And he was he was just a country music fan. And he'd he'd had this amazing story of like being in a bar in Nashville and playing this song. And this guy had come up to him, this is like 30 years ago, and said, like, I really love the chorus of that song, but can I change do you mind if I change the verse? And it was John's first trip to Nashville. So he was like, Yeah, go for it. Turns out this guy was like Garth Brooks's piano player. And like literally 10 years later, having thought, oh, that nothing of it. This song gets cut by Garth Brooks and his wife, Trisha Yearwood. It's a huge number one, like a huge country number one. And John Peppard is like, he's like living in Dorking. And you know, he writes songs, but he's, mm. and he's a beautiful guitarist and a lovely man. But, you know, he was just like, this is unbelievable. But so I, I the, here, upon hearing that story, I thought, well, I've got to go. I've got to find out this place. And I was sort of, you know, at the, at the time, at the end of a, a relationship. And it was just a good moment to kind of like, not disappear, but just to sort of get some space, I guess. So I went to Nashville, didn't know anyone, walked around aimlessly, um, and gradually, I think I did two write, two songwriting days on my first 10 days there, came back home, had caught the bug of something of the desire to be there more, because there's something in the water there without, without a doubt. Um, 
And then I went back there about six months later, did three writing sessions and met a publisher and then another manager. And I just kept going, going back, basically. And I've not stopped. And it, there, there is, you know, and I gradually the people that I first met on my first trips are now having their moment, as it were, they're, they're, they're writing or they're publishers or they're in A&R stuff. And it's just a very magical, magical place. And I, I think for want of not being too spiritual, I, I think it's, it's got something like, uh, like these ley lines that I believe Glastonbury also sits on and other, other culturally um, powerful places. And I, as soon as I land at the airport there, I have ideas that I would not have if I was walking around in London. And it's a lot of them are kind of country ideas. But, yeah. you know, for, for a Jewish boy from northwest London, I, I, I won't profess to be being a, a prof- uh, an expert in country music, but you, you can, it's, it's just, it's, there's opportunity there and amazing amount of talent. Yeah. And I suppose, I know it's changed a bit more recently, but I mean, even back then, there still is that kind of ethic of going in the morning, write a song, record a song, finish the song, leave. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's an amazing city for that because it's, it's, it's technically, I guess, in American terms, it's quite small geographically. I mean, it's grown hugely and it continues to at, at pace, but nowhere's really more than 10 or 15 minutes away so if you want to you know you you start you start at 10 in the morning you might even meet up earlier than that which here in london or definitely in la is like what are you talking about like it's 11 or midday at the very earliest um but uh, quite often my my songwriting sessions in nashville are done no later than two o'clock and you know even in that time you've written what you'd hope to be a pretty solid song have a pretty good version of it down can go to the studio around the corner and re-record the one you did the day before, go and watch one of the best gigs of your life and a songwriter's around somewhere, have a great dinner somewhere and still be home at like eight o'clock in the evening. It's just like, it's this weird place where sort of time stops and you can get stuff done at a high level as well. And I've always thought as well that, especially because, I mean, I think particularly in country music, but you know, in those situations where you are walking into rooms and it's predominantly, I know it's changed massively now because of the technology, but a lot of times it's an acoustic guitar and a piano and there could never be, the the lyric could never be more important than it is in those rooms. You're not going to get away with anything that isn't extraordinary. You're not, and like I said earlier, I'm, I'm, and I know I'm not alone on this, but I'm like a super fan of like, uh, of Coldplay and, and The Killers for example, and I mean, I think I think Brandon Flowers is is an amazing lyricist, and he takes you on these amazing movies of of words and 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 stories that he tells. And Chris Martin is the same, uh, melodically. I think unrivaled in terms of his ability, um, just unbelievable. But lyrically, he's it's it's quite um, it's big picture stuff. Quite, quite a lot of the time. Uh, I hope he doesn't mind me saying that. Uh, I'm sure he. I'm sure he doesn't really care what I think. I think he's doing all right. But like, it's 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 more it's emotive stuff. Whereas in in, in Nashville, there needs to be not always, but more more so. Like, what's the story? Is there a little twist on the last chorus that we twist the knife a bit more? But and and getting to work with some people there. There's there's a couple of writers. Well, one in particular, a girl called Laura Veltz, who I work with a lot. And lyrically, she comes in with like a book, like the Doomsday Book, and it's like, okay, I've got these ideas. And 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 a, a lady called Natalie Henby as well. They're both like so fun to work with because you can just 
go in and almost soundtrack the conversation that you're having with them. And I love doing that because they'll, they have life stuff just pouring out of them. And like, what about if we said this and then, da, da, da. and that's why it's quick because someone's kind of come in there with a story. Yeah. And all you have to do really is like not balls it up yeah. <laughs> basically, which uh, I try, but um, it's a, it's a different world there. And it's quite difficult to recreate that sometimes here in London, I find because it's just a different atmosphere. Yeah, I've often said, and, and it's come up quite a few times when I've been talking to people, that the the firstly, the one of the weirdest things to do in the whole world is to walk into a room with someone you've never met before and then begin to have a conversation like, you know, that's... That's, that's insane. Uh, it's it's yeah. completely insane. But <laughs> yeah. the second thing is, I think as well is that that preamble, um, that kind of bit, I, I remember I was, there's a couple of times that I worked with Judy Zook where, mm. you know, it would be five or six hours of chat and you get to the yeah. point where you go, nothing's going to happen today, but I've had a lovely day. And then all of a sudden it will go, oh, what about, have you thought about bang, 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 but like an hour yeah, and yeah. it's done. And that hour would never have happened. It would never have got that song had you not had the pre kind of chat. And You, a, you have to have the pre-chat. You have yeah. to have that pre-chat. And I, I sometimes and i find and it's almost like too obvious to say like you know la is such a different beast and it's like so difficult to get around or whatever yeah. but I'm, I'm very grateful to have the opportunity to go there and, and work and stuff and experience it but it, it is it is different and I, I find it's a lot more guarded you don't get you have to people are like sort of like sort of sizing you up a bit more whereas 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 in nashville and and here also like in this studio setup we have here for example there's like a little a kitchenette thing and then people come through into mm. the room here or we go into the bigger room but quite often we will all as a group of writers or with the person that we're working with that day just have a cup of tea and chat for mm. half an hour or an hour without even coming anywhere near a piano or a guitar and i would say 99 percent of the time even if someone's come in with like i've got to do this idea i've got this idea whatever we talk about in that first 20 minutes half an hour ends up kind of infused or like peppering the entire lyrical foundation of what we end up writing even yeah. if we don't realize it at the time yeah and i love that bit of the process it's and, and like you said it's really weird and i have to explain it to like family or friends that don't work in in music they'll be like well, what do you do like what do you just start singing at each other yeah and it's 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 pretty odd yeah especially and more often than not you're meeting someone for the first time yeah um and you're basically within five minutes just like screaming, <laughs> screaming yeah. melodies at each other. Um, but that first chat is vital. Yeah. It breaks the ice and the song is in there, Yeah, I think. Yeah, no, me too. I'm always tremendously suspicious of this idea that people kind of come in and go, right, let's write a hit. And it's like, no, that doesn't yeah. happen. It would be lovely. It, yeah, but I mean, it, 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 it doesn't happen. I suppose the other thing in Nashville, I mean, obviously you're starting to get some some records you know stuff coming out songs coming out and you know a lot of country pop stuff like the Cassidy Pope record or in fact the Lucy Hale record which is like everyone's oh, you yeah, know, yeah. actress and uh, yeah, yeah, but yeah. um I really love the record and I think and I wonder what what this was like because at the time you're writing you've got you know you've done a bit of production you're into production but I think on something like the striking matches record they must have been so cool to know that that thing was going to end up being produced by T-Bone Burnett yeah, that was cool. Um, and it's so weird, like like we're having this conversation now, but I hadn't I hadn't spoken to the guys, the striking matches guys for a minute, but we recently like we reconnected last week. Because I mean they're Nashville based, but 
as small a town as it is, it's also like everyone's just out doing their own thing or gigging and touring a lot. But yeah, knowing that like that someone like T-Bone Burnett was going to like, like sometimes you can worry about, oh, God, like, I wish I wish I could, I could just do it. Or, what well, you know, why is that person doing that? They, they don't do stuff like that. But yeah, there, there's a lot of, there's not, sorry, rather, there's not a lot of T-Bone Burnett's in the world. And there's also equally, there's not a lot of, the musicians that he uses in the world either. Like, so you just know it's going to be that warm hug of a sort of sound on tape and it's going to be just vibes basically. Um, But yeah, there's, there's Nashville is riddled with people of that caliber, yeah, which is why I love being there as well. Cause you just, things are going to sound pretty good. I was interested on that on, on, on like lovers particularly about, was that written with the guys from the band? Yes. Because I, I love um, yeah, the fact was. that it's. I always wonder when it's a when it's a like an Everly Brothers two part harmony thing. Like, mm. what is, where is the me- like? Do you write it? it? What's the melody? What's the harmony? Almost. I see. You know, we we wrote that, and that was a really good example of what you just what you were just talking about before of like chatting, trying a few other ideas, and like right at the end of the day, I think we wrote that in like about fifteen minutes. And wow. I know it's easy to say that in hindsight yeah, and like yeah, glamorize yeah, yeah. it, but that was genuinely like. I just remember like we were like kind of calling it a day and we just still, yeah, we were chatting. And and obviously I think that phrase like to walk away like lovers and kind of end a relationship with, with grace yeah, um, was something that we'd been talking about. I mean, I wasn't suggesting <laughs> that, that they do that, but it was like, yeah. um, and then we just wrote it because it was part of the conversation. Um, and, and, and to answer your point, the, the, the harmonies were happening at the time because it, yeah. it just feels like it's one of those songs that it's almost like a familiar friend you've like the first time you hear it you think oh that's it's yeah. kind of standard almost it felt like it just fitted perfectly within that world yeah well that's that's kind of you to say I, I think i think that's the goal as a songwriter is to sort of come up with something where it feels even to you as a, a co-creator of it that it's always existed yeah that that's if you if something happens like that and then you get to the end of the day well and you're listening on your headphones like walking back or getting on the train it's like well that that where, where did that come from like yeah. it's and you you know maybe we just you know received it for the in the the antenna but yeah that, that's a good example of just spontaneity and capturing a moment i think um those are the best kind, I think. Definitely. It's a beautiful song. Um, I just want to kind of get into a couple of this. impossible to go through everything with you, but um, I think the James Bay story is interesting because you were sort of involved at the very beginning and then you sort of weren't, and then you were again. Yes. So what? when did you meet James? So I met James at um, Phil Thornalley's studio house where I was where I was this morning and I think I was James's first official sort of co-write he was managed and still is um by the brilliant uh, Paul McDonald at Closer Management and Paul was very good friends with Mark my manager and it was just like we got this guy like do you fancy like can I just like sling him in with John for a, a day or two and he uh, James got the train down from from Bedfordshire where he grew up and we just immediately like connected um, and just found each other sort of funny and just like chatting about football and stuff. He's very passionate about his football as well. And very quickly in that like that morning of meeting, I realized that he's really bloody good. Yeah. Um, and, and he was a raw, a kind of a raw aversion as it were of, of where we where James is now, of course, but he, 
like an amazing guitarist, great singer, and just super, super committed. Like we would do like, you know, sometimes when you're doing a demo, it's like, yeah, just get it down. It'd be fine. It'd be a vibe. But he was like, no, I want to get that guitar lick better. And like, he would just, he was a perfectionist and still is. Yeah. Um, so we, we, we had a couple of days together. We wrote a song called When We Were On Fire, which kind of lasted the distance and made it through to his first album, even though I think from our first meeting to his first album coming out was probably a good year and a half. Um, but um, he, he'd gone to Nashville, as it happens, and did his first record with the, the brilliant Jakir King, um, who's a bit of a legend, um, on the Nashville scene and, and Amer- Americana scene in general. Um, and so we, we didn't lose touch, but we just kind of like, I'd, I'd been going to, a Nash- to Nashville and back, and we, you know, we had a, a couple of great days together. I'd actually put together like a, an acoustic EP of his, which is The, the dar- uh, Darkness of the Morning. Um, and I, I produced that kind of away from him slightly because like we, he would send me parts and all the rest of it. Um, but we kind of sort of lost touch a bit, but all, all, all with love. And then he, he did the album in Nashville with Jakir King came back and then we just, we always stayed in touch and then ended up reconnecting a, a couple of years after he, well, a year after he'd finished kind of touring the first album and just started writing what became Electric Light. Um, his second record, which um, I did pretty much entirely with James. And then we went, we very fortunately got to go to uh, work with Paul Epworth at his church studio in Crouch End in North London. And I had basically the best summer of my life, just like basically polishing up and diving in with Paul on like the songs that we'd started elsewhere and brought them in, got to work in, in the main room there for the whole summer. And it was just like, like I was—I I don't want to swear, but I was a pig in um, excrement, <laughs> basically. Because and and to be work with Paul, who's just a total hero and a class act, and and all the gear there and stuff was so fun. Yeah, and you say polish it up, but actually, it, it's got a massive. I mean, something like Wild Love is very raw sounding. So it wasn't. I mean, I understand what you mean polishing it up, but actually, it was a such an edgy record. Well, uh, it's something. It's something that I um, am still, and I know James as well, so proud of that record because it was. I think, I think it disconnected with people um, in some ways because it was a bit of a sort of you know it wasn't like we were like you know doing like Sergeant Pepper's or something. We hadn't like so we hadn't gone like lost you know we hadn't gone completely off the reservation uh, for James at that point. But uh, I think people were so used to him being the guy in the hat with doing acoustic kind of love-based songs that it was a bit of a leap, but we we were just having a good time. And that continued when we got into the room with Paul. And I think Wild Love is also a really good example of like writing all day, like nothing happening. And then we were like almost as a joke at the end of the day, just in this, we were in this small room in Kensal Rise. Um, and we were just jamming this song and we're like, oh, that's, that feels good. Let's just do it. And, and so what, what you now hear with Wild Love is a, is not massively changed from that first 20 minutes of when we wrote the song, put it down. And then I remember sending it to James the next day, the demo version. He was like, um, this feels like quite good. This doesn't feel too much of a leap from where I was. And it kind of makes sense a bit of the album. So like, maybe we should try that when we go in with Paul and Paul Epworth is brilliant at kind of beefing stuff up, like kind of like putting it through 
some serious sort of synths that he's got the most amazing synthesizer collection ever and you know getting the bottom end sort of rumbling a bit more um and and what yeah but wild love is pretty rough and it's still pretty rough but i quite like that no it, it is and the other one the other interesting song on that well lots of interesting songs but the, for me the other interesting song is us basically because i always think the hardest thing to write is a really really great love song that isn't mm. cheesy and yeah. I, I fell <laughs> most days. Yeah. No, but I feel yeah. like you, I feel like you achieved, you know, you hit the kind of jackpot with that one. And I find it interesting that that song keeps coming around, you know, it kind yeah. of, whether it gets used on a TV thing or something like that. Yeah. And obviously, you know, then the duet with Alicia, but um, mm. it's a big anthemic kind of beautiful romantic chorus, but has, but doesn't feel too sweet. No, it, it doesn't feel, um, it doesn't feel too written. Yes, and exactly. I think it's really difficult sometimes. And, and also because it's quite literal, you know. The the you know I believe in us on paper. You're like, okay, well I know I know where this is going. Yeah. Like, what else have you got, sort of thing? But actually, I think we did a pretty good job. At, and you know, James's natural soulfulness and his voice and playing helps that no mm. end. But like, I think it's you're absolutely right. Like that could have gone really cheesy and i'm sure there's people who, who think that it is really cheesy but it has a life of its own that song and i'm really proud of it because it's sort of we just felt really sincere when yeah. we wrote it and it wasn't trying to be anything that it isn't and it has this the life that it's taken on it kind of ends up like you said on like in weird placement like tv placements that like you can't chase it's just it just it, it that song has a, a nice message to it but i think people take it as a love song but they also take it as a kind of like an an empathetic kind of humanity song it's not just about yeah you know two partners trying to figure stuff out it's also about us and them it's, it's like that, there's other yeah. stuff yeah it's that, what, that got, universal word that everyone hates when they say oh you know let's make it universal so it's not just about two people but, no exactly but yeah. I, I love what you said there actually about the fact it doesn't sound written i like the fact that it just it kind of you would it's a chorus that you could just feel like anybody could sing. It's almost got that kind of Chris, as you say, Chris Martin's really good at this as well. That kind of almost terrace like, you know, yeah. punching the air. Springsteen again, really. No, no, it's totally. When you've had a few it's, drinks, it's like, wow, you know, you can. It's unbelievable. Like Chris Martin's knack of um, finding those messages and saying it in a way that, like, you know, you know what's coming. But like you, there's just a little twist and melodically, even when it's big sort of chanty stuff, it's like, it's just, he keeps, he keeps it fresh. And I always feel like when I'm in a songwriting session, you know, you're doing a good job. If you like, you, you can't, when you listen back to what you've done, you don't hear the, the cogs turning of like, okay, so we're in the pre-chorus now and then we're going to do this. And then it's like, it's, if it just feels like it's happening. Mm then then that's that's the dream ticket really and i think i mean there's so many amazing writers in the world and artists who do that on a on a regular basis but it's it's weirdly difficult to like not make it sound like it was an effort yeah but it, no, but, but it but it doesn't it's interesting talking about chris and talking about coldplay and i remember the first time i remember it really distinctly i was in a rehearsal with with kylie and this is way 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 before golden way before any of that stuff and she came up to me and she said, I've just, I've finally got my Coldplay Festival anthem. And she played me the demo of Lost Without You. 
Oh, cool. And 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 it it was that it was exact, but it was electronic and everything like that. Um, was that the first thing you wrote together? It was, um, and um, that was. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'd, I'd met, I'd met Kylie briefly a couple of times before because our, our dear friend Tom Meadows, um, fellow guest uh, yes. of the of the cast uh, of the pod, yeah. um, uh, is obviously uh, been Kylie's long long time drummer, and and I'd been to a couple of gigs, and he, he very kindly sort of brought me along. So I wasn't sort of like, I wasn't, I wouldn't say that I was nervous, but I was like, come on. Like this is like this is a let's get this right and and I'd, I I I didn't really have a space at that time to work from a, like a regular space and I I was in in this room same place actually I'd written Wild Love with, with James Bay but it was this room um, in Kensal Rise underneath East Coast Studios mm-hmm. and actually there's some great history to that room anyways it's tiny it's like a really small unassuming room a guy called Adam Morley had rented it out to me for a few days. Um, and it's a great space around there. There's like Martin Tereffi, like runs the sort of mm. Kensal Town yeah. vibe and all that. So there's always stuff going on. And it was actually Paul Epworth's old room, and he'd done Rolling in the Deep in this room with Adele. And it's like it's, a, it's basically <laughs> like it's not. I wouldn't want to do it a disservice, but it's basically like a big cupboard. Yeah. And you know, there's a step on the front on the by the front door, which Adele used to do the kick drum for Rolling in the Deep. It's her stomping her foot yeah. basically. Um, so there's a lot of, there's that, that room has a bit of energy in it anyway, even though it's very unassuming, um, but part of a brilliant complex and Kylie, um, came in and as, as you well know, was just so lovely and just warm and complete class as, as she always is. And I kind of did what I like to do quite often. I got there a bit earlier and I just like, I set up my stuff. And it's all a bit haphazard. There's like cables everywhere and sort of shit going on. But like, I just like to have like a moment, like even 10 minutes before a session or before an artist arrives where I, I play without thinking too much. And I think like, what would I like Kylie to do as a fan? If I went to a gig now, what would I like to hear now? And I just ended up doing this sort of synth thing. And I had this kind of drone noise playing, um, which actually isn't the note that the, it's not the note of the key of the song, if that makes yeah. sense, but yeah. it kind of provides a, like a tension over the chords that I was messing around with. Anyway, so I'd, I'd had that like, and I'd recorded that. And then I had a, a lot, I actually did ask Kylie to remind me what happened because I knew that I was going to be speaking to you. And I, I, um, she as brilliantly, cause she's so professional reminded me of what, what had happened. I might just uh, quickly check what she told me. <laughs> but, um, she said, uh, we went, yeah, so oh, that's right. So I had I had the title Lost Without You and it was kind of coming when I was playing these chords, it was kind of coming to my mind. And like the the melody of I wanna get lost without you it kind of descended weirdly over the chords. And she in her brilliant way was just like, well, I love that. Let's just do that. Let's just you know, and we chatted for like 10 minutes and it was about it was about you and it was about Tom and about our connection points and stuff. But it kind of quite quickly took shape, and she then had this line, like, you know, we're all uh, we're all glitter and tears in the moonlight or something, and she's like, I want to say that like, that music's making me want to say that, and that that lyric does feature, but we were just kind of like, I don't know, it just happened. It kind of just like went on this journey, and sonically, there is a lot going on in that song, mm. and 
I mean, you, you know probably more than I do because you've had to piece it together. <laughs> apologies. No, no, it's, it's, but it doesn't matter. It's like, it's, yeah. it is glorious. But to me, that's, that's one of the songs that I'm like most proud of because it's like, as my job in on that day as a songwriter and and uh, I guess a producer in that instance was to, is to like what what would I want as a fan what would I want Kylie to do like I said if I was at the gig how would it look on stage if like the like the light the lasers kind of go with, with the sort of which when drop into the chorus which happened <laughs> and it, it I you know how rarely does an idea of a song get anywhere near that let alone out the room on the day and like onto the A&R's desk and it gets like through all the gatekeepers that yeah. it has to go through. But it just felt like we'd stumbled upon, like, upon something. And like I was saying to you before we started recording, like, because I've just been doing a bit more work with Kylie and just like her, her work ethic and her focus. And she was no different on that day. And it's like, let's get it right. Let's make every lyric just feel good and, mm. and make you feel things. And I'm really proud of that song because I, I listened to it this morning ahead of chatting to you because and I hear it as if it already existed and I almost hear it as if like there's no way I was any part of that like wow okay <laughs> do you know what I mean like where it's like how did that happen yeah because it's just like and I'm not saying because it's bloody brilliant but I'm I'm saying no, because well, I, it just, I'll say it's brilliant because it, it is yeah, well, no, it's, thank it's, you, but it, it's it's in my top top five favorite Kylie songs of all time I mean it is oh, just mate, well, thank you for it. I mean, and I love the and I love the fact that it. It happened way before, almost, you know, before Golden took its turn to be Golden and it was more of a country yes. thing. And, it, you know, normally the first songs that are written for projects often don't end up making them because other yeah. things have happened. And and I think the fact that it, it did make it and, it and you know, it was in the show and everything, but it just felt, as you say, it was about a feeling. And I love the fact that what you just said there about, you know, those little pearls of lyrics mm -hmm. that just kind of dro just drop from her mouth. And it's, yeah. it's just, it's perfection. And and I think that stems from not only Kylie being brilliant, but also she's fantastic at knowing in the best possible way, like um, her role as an artist and yeah. what her audience wants from her. Yeah. And be that lyrically or groove wise or whatever, or whatever it might be. And I think that it was just, I just remember it just being a really fun day and i couldn't wait to go back in the next morning and like piece it together a bit and get it to kind of closer to where it, where it ended up being but um it was yeah i don't know i just i it's one of those songs like i said where you just almost like you you don't quite know how it happened you don't really hear the cogs turning too much well i don't um yeah. personally and it's just it just feels like it had to exist yeah. in whatever form and, and you're absolutely right in terms of the timing of you know, that was quite early on in the in the golden process, mm. and when I'd spoken to various people in the in the in the chain of command who told me, I know we're doing like a Nashville country thing. Even though I spend a lot of time in Nashville and do a lot of that stuff, I'm like, oh shit, well that song's not going to work, is it? Yeah. Um, and I was very very surprised and great, eternally grateful that it 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 kind of stands on its own as this thing that just exists on the oh, album. It had to, and and you did do a Nashville country thing for Radio I did. One. So, yeah, that, you know. that is true. Yeah, so I covered I covered the bases, and that was with the brilliant uh, and dear friend uh, Amy uh, Amy Wodge as well. So that was uh, another great room to be in, uh, and also always with Amy and with Kylie. It's like it's the extension now of just a really good hang, and you try and just sort of should we write a song then? And yeah. it's just yeah, and the the best songs come from that, and 
and that, that just hanging out and chatting like with your mates isn't is it's not being lazy and not doing any work it's part of the gig yeah it's part of like where the song resides and i think um it's an important yeah important bit of the process and then you deliver the hat trick with say something which was the anthem that people <laughs> didn't didn't even know they needed when it came yeah. out <laughs> I, I, I know I need it, but no, um, no, yeah, but no, you know no, what I mean. Well, it turned into this this thing. It was, I mean, again, that's you know, that's with Biff and with Ash, and, yes. and um, I mean, what is the song? I mean, I'm fascinated about the process well, of that, that song. That I mean, that's another thing that was kind of like, what what happened there? Like, what is going? What this sound that's coming out to be good? But I know, I remember going to the album launch for Golden. And Biff, who I'd spoken to before about a couple of other things like along the years, um, who I was obviously a massive fan of, like total legend, he came up to me and was like, kept like kept we wanted to talk to me about Lost Without You. And I was like, this is Biff, like this is like a total hero, but like what a nice, what a nice guy and what a legend he, he is and an amazingly kind person. But we ended up writing together as a result of him kind of making that connection point. We really sort of connected and did a couple of writing days together on some different things. And then um, I went down to write with, with Biff, with Kylie and with Ash and Ash and Biff had had this, this thing. Yeah. Yeah. The sequence thing going. And it was one of those things like, you know, if you hear a piece of music, like from another room, that you're not part of the initial creation creation of you sort of sing different ideas that you would if you were like staring at the piano in front of yourself like you're detached from it slightly and i felt that way because the the, the sequencer was already going and the, the beat was kind of kind of that kind of bombastic thing was already happening and i just started singing stuff and then playing from what i can remember playing kind of chords that they weren't expecting me to play and that i definitely wouldn't have played had i been part of the initial sequencer yeah. decision, if you see what I mean. And then Kylie and I just started singing stuff and it just it just poured out. And it turned it by the end of like within two hours, we were doing all these like gospel things and like weird guitar riffs. Um and I'd 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 been listening a lot to the, you know, as I often do, like to the killers and stuff. And I think, I think I can't remember if it had come out by that point. Maybe it had the the, um, the man by the killers. Mm. Um, I which love is an extraordinary song. Oh record. my God, what a great record, yeah. And it's that, it's just like a jet engine of a record like, in your face. Like as soon as it starts, it's just, it sounds huge. And I think that maybe that was like in the, in the ether as well. So some of those guitar parts and the kind of the aggression of some of the parts to it with the sort of joyous Kylie elements. And it yeah. just, if, if you ask me what that song is about, even though I co-wrote it, I've got absolutely no idea. But does it make me feel things and make me want to like bring people together then yeah basically it just had something and do you remember what i mean do you remember the point where you got to you'd got because it always normally happens with the song and actually what's interesting about say something is it's not a typical song structure at all so no. but there must have been a point where you get to the bit where we always do when we write songs we get to like two and two minutes and like what's mm. going to happen now and yeah. then it's one line repeated how did that yeah. come about i think i think we were kind of all uh probably like emotionally drained um and just probably wanted to go and have lunch uh, or dinner probably i think i think there was probably a uh, maybe even an unspoken decision that, that because the, the structure of the song wasn't standard and it wasn't complex but it was like 
it wasn't like here's your verse, here's your pre-chorus, here's you know. I think it was like, well, we should probably just like stick in one place now and just repeat, 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 because everything else up to this point has been a bit like, what is going on? So I think that was probably uh, maybe an unwitting, like natural result of what had happened before that point. But I'm glad we did it because it's just what happens from that point to the end of the song to me is just like what is personally what I what I live for in music, just a cacophony of like yeah. that. And then you get like a previous hook flying back in. And yeah. it's like that to me is like confetti cannons. Good night, basically. I love that. It and then it must have been such a, a great moment in the room when whoever uttered that first phrase of, you know, love is love, it never ends, can we all be as one again, came out. That must have just been Yeah, that was a good moment. And I, yeah, it, it was Goosebump Central. I'm not, I'm not saying this either to take unnecessary credit or, 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 or give it elsewhere, but I think, I think we were all, it, I don't even know where that came from, but genuinely, I'm sure Biff or Kylie will, will remind me but, um, <laughs> in, a, in a lovely way, but it was just, it just felt like the right, it's the right thing to say. Yeah. You know, and I, th- I think Kylie maybe had, had confirmed or maybe um, she was confirmed to be headlining Pride coming up at mm-hmm. that point. And so it was just something we were chatting about anyway during the day. So it just, it just kind of fell out and that was the right message to conclude and, the song. Yeah, really. yeah. And actually doubly so when it got performed at Infinite Disco with House Gospel Choir yeah. when everyone was oh. in lockdown and Can We All Be As One Again was... A completely different meaning. No, I know, and it's weird. Like some, sometimes I find, like in my in my life, I've sort of written songs. You either like, I don't know, you sort of write songs where you're like, you don't know you are, but you're actually your lyrics are like predicting the future. But be it like a relationship, like not quite working out, whatever it is. And sometimes you write songs reflecting that stuff. But it's always interesting when you write things into reality. Sometimes it could be more prescient than you think it is weirdly um but yeah so i just want to just touch on a few other um of mm. my favorite things that you've done um i spoke to jez ashurst about this um god you must be so proud of Maisie and what she's done yeah really proud i mean it's just i mean following her instagram feed is like i mean i feel uh as i do in most rooms that i go into now like like the 43 year old bloke that i am <laughs> uh and and everyone else is just getting younger and younger but yeah Maisie's feed on Instagram is just so exciting and so vibrant and the gigs she's doing supporting Ed Sheeran, you know, on this huge European tour. And she Mm -hmm. is an unbelievable talent. Like it's just, it's crazy to watch her do what she does in the writing room. She's just relentless. But pretty much from the get go, she was the kind of the real deal, right? I mean, just from the first, I'm presuming that is you counting in on details, is it? Uh, that is me counting in. Yeah, I should have probably muted that. Before no, I, I enjoyed it. it. <laughs> um, I think she told me to leave it, actually. But I, I um, yeah, she, I don't know. It's just like you sometimes meet people in, in life, not just in music, who are like, bloody hell, like, you know you know something that I don't, basically. Yeah. And I, I, there was a quote, I think, I think I'm, not to, I'm not trying to sort of sound like cooler than I am, because I'm, I'm not. <laughs> but like, I think it was a Dylan, a Bob Dylan quote, where he was like talking about, when you see uh, someone that you admire or a famous person, even you want to, they should have that energy coming off them that they're like, they they've seen things that you haven't, or they've been in rooms that you'll never be in, or there's just this, they, they yeah, they just, they just know stuff that is beyond your pay grade. Mm. And I, I feel like with Maisie, um, she just, 
her brain it, it works un- unbelievably fast and she has these stories like the, the the ladies i mentioned before laura veltz and natalie hemby and many others in nashville who just they can see the pictures like well if i say that there i should probably say that here say that there da, 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 da. and uh, you know and i'm not saying that i'm not involved in the vote the, in the lyrical bit of these songs but i think when you're in a room with someone like that it's just you just sit back and just try and like hang on to the coattails and suggest what about if we did this chord here because that would really mess some people up right now mm. sort of thing yeah she's she's something else she's very special yeah and and it is incredibly contemporary but also there's an element of it lyrically that is so poetic that almost goes back to the standards like there's words right. that she will use that yeah. haven't been used in songs for years yeah um, yeah and it's uh it's an extraordinary I think that's a grasp I mean she reads so much as well she's just got an amazing grasp of, of the English language and she's she's very very switched on and very very bright and um, it's it's cool to be around it kind of keeps you like on your toes a bit um, which is good just sort of interesting to hear where people are at um, yeah. and what, what what the experience of, of being a 19 20 you know 20 21 year old in modern britain yeah how that how that works yeah um uh, yeah want to stay in the room great absolutely great songs and again with the country thing i mean you, you've always struck me as someone that is all about the feeling and the emotion and not necessarily that worried about the success but i guess having that you know having a number one u.s country mm. single is it's kind of cool isn't it it was cool with, with it the was lady, a good lady, it was, lady a thing yeah um it was it was a great it was a great moment uh, I can't lie, and it was kind of I, I, my my. I guess my biggest thing, and I have this when I watch films, and when I is and when I listen to music, is that I just like redemption is like a big buzzword for me, and it's not like you know I've had a, a very brilliant and and privileged and very fortunate life, and there's lots of issues in the world that and people face huge challenges, but like I for some reason I just I get very emotional when things come good after yeah. like someone putting in a shift and I, you know I, I definitely have and continue to put put a lot of work in and so when you get moments where the dots all get well the you know the the t's all get crossed and the i's all get dotted and it just gets through the gatekeepers and it's like it makes it and i know there's lots of other aspects to the industry but especially with a song like whatever i never get over you it, it just it's it's a song that moves me, me still when mm. I listen to it. And I was just very fortunate to be in the room with some dear friends and we were just feeling something. And I, I had like a melody and like a chain of chords that I was working on. And Laura Veltz, who I mentioned before, was just like, you know, that's, there's something in that. We should chase that. And Ryan Heard, um, he's a great writer and a dear friend as well, had this idea of like, what if I get over you? And we were like chasing that for a minute, but then Laura was like, "Would it not be better if it was like, what if I don't? Like, <laughs> can yeah. we can we like, what? How does that read?" And so we chatted, um, and then a dear friend, also Sam Ellis, and was so it was the four of us in the room in Sam's little room at Universal Publishing in, in Nashville, and we just like dug in on it for like not not too long, like an hour, just chatting about it, and then quite quickly we pieced together the, the demo of it ryan sang it he's got a great voice and it was it was on hold for lady a within about 20 minutes after we sent it like mm. and that's what happens in nashville which i don't feel happens here so much mm. uh it takes there's a bit more politics here but you can send stuff to an artist and they'll be like 
if it's good, yeah. do not play that to anyone else. I'm going to sing that tomorrow, basically. Yeah. And they, and they invariably they do if it's if it's good. But that that song and that whole moment was special, and it was kind of a validation of putting the work in and making you want to do it again. Really. Yeah. Yeah. The other the other question song um, of yours because <laughs> we love a question song. Yeah, One of the yeah. other question songs is is arguably. Easily, well, alongside something like Lost and, and Say Something, one of my favourite things you've ever been involved in, which is the, the Marin Morris song, What Would the World Do? Yeah. What Would This World Do? Sorry. Yeah. Um, again, that just feels like a song that just happened. It, it did happen. I mean, and it happened against a pretty, uh, you know, a, 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 an emotional backdrop of it. So, so Marin Morris, um, amazing artist and singer and, and a good friend and her husband Ryan who I wrote the Lady A tune with we were all very close with a, a great great power called Busby um, who produced and co-wrote Marin's first two albums unfortunately he fell very very sick um, this was before COVID um, and was it was quite clear that he was he was not long for this earth um, and we were all very close and I, you know i kind of grown up in the industry with Busby in, in, a, in many ways. It was very close with his family. So we kind of got together, Marin, Ryan and I, and just chatted about it and and wrote wrote that song. We were around the piano at, at Lucy Silvis's house in Nashville. And I think it's very sincere. I don't think it comes across as too earnest, which is always that fine line that you can walk. And, and Marin's vocal is ridiculous. Um, and, and good, good, not, not yeah, yeah. ridiculous. No, I know what you mean. Yeah, okay. um, and and it just felt like a natural something that we wanted to say to to Busby, um, who unfortunately never got to hear it. So you know, and and it's it, it yeah, it's I'm very proud of that song, but it's it's very bittersweet because obviously I'd rather have my uh, have my mate here than have to be writing songs about it. But um, yeah, I'm 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 proud of that. I think I think we did a good job with it. Yeah, I think it's a song like that. It it travels as well because obviously you mm. have your personal story attached course, to it, but yeah. then other people's personal stories will also get attached to it. I also yeah. think it's a really good example of Kirsten, you know, who is so multi talented when he produces, but actually he he knows he always knows when to fill stuff up, but he always knows when to just leave it. Yeah, and I thought the production on it was was su- absolutely superb. No, no, I, I agree with you. I think there was that initial moment. When I'm like, also, I'm such a fan. I'm thinking like, oh, it's going to like do an orchestra and it's going to like go off. <laughs> but then, like, I, you know, Marin plays it. I'm like, I oh, know, okay, so it's just, it's just the piano. Yeah, but, yeah. But, but actually, well, does, what, it's right. It's, it's right. all they needed. And he's, you know, yeah. he's, he's. A, I, I always say, Greg Kirsten has a real, he's a bastion of taste. There's always a. Oh yeah. Doesn't matter what, he, whichever genre he's working in with, mm-hmm. you know, it's the the taste level is always correct. No, it's unbelievable, and and his consistency. And the diversity of what he works on, it's just like, it's, it's awe-inspiring. And then the quality is always bloody good. I mean, it's, 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 quite, um, it's quite frightening, actually. <laughs> it's like the, what he's churning out. It is quite yeah. frightening. I just want to end on a few, um, I won't say deep cuts, because they are songs that I love. I've, got, I've, got, I've got mostly got deep cuts. No, 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 <laughs> but they're songs that I love. Um, and also things that I feel like have very much your... You know, the thing we began talking about, your sort of soundscape sort of thing, mm. this kind of, you know, it's very telling when you said about Scott Walker and I know you and mm. I have spoken about Spectre before and, you know, mm. a bit about 
pet sounds and yep. you know things in the background there's very often on songs that you've produced or worked on there's normally some kind of element of you in the background sort yep. of chaos basically i'm just trying to get ppl but <laughs> yeah no but it but it's lovely um i thought but journeys like what you're talking about journey songs mm. um one of the best examples of that i think you've ever done is silhouette by aquilo oh which cool had thank you yeah. such a journey mm. and it and it it felt like Again, as I, when I said about songs that would feel, felt quick, that felt like it probably took a while to perfect. That it song. did, and that, that and actually, and I, I I love working with the Aquilo Boys. They're just such good value, and they they have such a a vision of what they want to be doing, sort of sonically all the time. And although it's it's grown and evolved a bit uh, even since then, but that did take a minute because we were like we'd written it just at the piano, and then I'd like messed around with some ideas on it. And then they were working with um, an amazing producer and arranger called uh, Olafur Arnolds. Mm. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. But yes. I mean, he's like, yeah. you know, total he hero. Stuff, yeah. um, and then it kind of come back to me and we kind of pieced it all together. So it was a bit of a process. But I think it it feels, yeah, I mean, that that to me, that silhouette, is, it's a weird one. Because like if I played like a like a two minute song that I thought was really strong, like to my brother, for example, who's also like, he's a musician, but he kind of understands the good and, and bad and things, I guess. If I played a two minute quick song on a guitar, he'd be like, yeah, that's all right. So if I played him silhouette, I would imagine they'd be like, that's a bit heavy, isn't it? Like, chill out. Yeah. But weirdly, he, he and a lot, lots of my friends who aren't musical even really connect with that song. It's an odd thing because it's quite heavy. Mm. It's quite a lot to process, but it's got, it's got an atmosphere to it that I think kind of supersedes like needing to know like exactly what's going on at any given moment. I'm, I'm proud of that song. It's it's, and it just also finds its way onto things because people mm. I think also feel what we felt when we wrote it. Yeah, I think it does. I think it has again, that almost Sigur Ross Coldplay-esque kind of, and it doesn't go where you expect. And it's, it, it's again, it's like, a, it's very dreamscape. Um, yeah. But I think to get, Listening to it with a producer's head on, to, I know what it takes to get that right, randomness right. right. Yes. Because, you know, it isn't, it's not just doesn't kind of, it, there is crafting involved in it. There is. And it normally happens after you've kind of cleaned everything up loads and be like, I'm kind of missing yeah. the chaos. The a chaos. Bit. And then you can just gradually find out where that was coming from and just dial it back in a bit. Yeah. Um, and add add to taste, um, but I, I I think that song is a really good example of just like I don't know what it is, but like it, it makes me feel but you something. like it. That that's yeah, the thing, yeah. You yeah. like it, and other people do, and 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 I don't. I think in this age of no intros, two minute songs, tick, you know, all that mm. kind of stuff. Um, we were talking about this recently about the fact that I think you know when people are given an opportunity to listen to something. And I think one of the only times that when, I suppose, for want of a better word, a younger generation have to listen to a whole song is when it's mm. attached to something they're watching. Yes. And I think yeah. if you get like a sync on that, I mean, you know, Kate Bush is the ultimate example of the fact yeah. that people were forced to listen to 4 Minutes 40 of Running Up That Hill and went, yeah. oh my God, that's incredible. 
And look, but look what happens though. It, yeah. it has this whole new life, and people love it because they they have been exposed, as it were, to the entire experience rather than fifteen than fifteen seconds. seconds. And that's the thing. And I think this is why I think the lot of your songs and production, you know, are, are, are highly syncable because you know they do create that emotion. They've got those. You know, you have that what I call, you know, for want of a better word, the last three minutes of a Grey's Anatomy or whatever, where the mm. whole song is part of the build. You know, and I think the Aquilo song is, it, it feels like a soundtrack to a, a something yeah, well, that I, hasn't I mean, been done. I, you, yet. I, you can tell my uh, publisher that. I've, I've, been telling, <laughs> I've been telling them that. <laughs> but no, it's, it's funny because the, you, like, whenever it's interesting that you raise that because I, I feel like quite a lot of that stuff, and this is not a critique of anyone who's who, on, my, on my team, as it were, yeah. they, they do an amazing job. But like, I, sometimes if you're in a writing session with an artist, the last thing you want them to say to you, like, I don't know where this is going to go on the album. It'd be great for sync because you're immediately like, well, that means you don't really like it. But yeah. nowadays, it's like, well, great because yeah. you might it might generate way more for me and do and have more of a life if it is at the end of Grey's Anatomy, for example. And I, I feel like all the stuff I've done with Aquilo, it has it has landed on a couple of things. But I often think the best syncs that you hear at the end of a Grey's episode or whatever it might be are ones that actually lyrically aren't quite on the nose of what is happening in the yeah, scene. Exactly. And sometimes I find I have conversations with other writers or, or even publishers that are perfectly healthy and positive where like, it kind of needs to say this buzzword, otherwise they're not going to use it. But like, I watch stuff all the time. And it's like, well, that's just nothing to do with what's happening, but it feels emotive. Yeah. And, and I would, I, I haven't watched, Strangest things this this season actually, but I would imagine that running up that hill is not spot on in terms of the situation. No. But what a bloody vibe it must be! I can only imagine. It's, I will watch it. I mean, yeah, where it comes in without giving anything away, where it comes mm. in the season is extraordinary, and and not only that, but they've expanded it and added right. and orchestrated it, and oh well, amazing. And, and you know, the obviously because the series is set in the eighties, but. I just love the fact that there could be a whole bunch of people now that have gone back and gone, who's this Kate Bush girl then? What does she, what yeah. else has she done? Yeah. And then, and, and, you know, I think, I think that's wonderful when, when that happens. Um, another one, again, someone who's actually gone on to be really, really successful, but you were in at the beginning. I, I, I thought that, um, the, the song you wrote, um, with 20 lie to me was again, yeah. another cold, like classic, like it felt like a standard straight away. Oh, awesome! I'm I'm proud of that song, and and very proud of Twenty. Like, uh, she just you know she works so hard, and she you know she gigs and gigs and gigs, and she's she's making it happen, and she's a brilliant talent, and um, and that song came from a very real place, and it just I don't know, it just it, it felt like. It just felt like you said. It felt like a song that probably existed beforehand. <laughs> Maybe it did. Maybe we're going to get an email. No, but no, <laughs> no, it did. But it just had that. That again, it had a right feeling about it. it had love energy, and her voice on it is incredible. I adore her voice. I think that. Yeah, I agree with you. Her work ethic is incredible. But um, you know, she's got all the skills and all the tools to back it up as well. No, she really does. And that that song, um, I think, I think, I think it's pretty much a live piano vocal take apart mm. from maybe like one or two little overdubby bits but like that's a good example of like well it just sounds good let's yeah. just go Organic, with that sort of thing. nice yeah. reverb nice reverb no that, yeah. that 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 one sounds amazing also um i feel like we're on, i'm on a mission have been on a mission along with my friend larry flick 
to try mm. and tell everybody that Fancy Haygood is the next world pop star. You would agree yeah. with that, right? I would agree with that. <laughs> and I'd agree with it. Like, even if he didn't have any music, which he does, and it's, it's brilliant. Uh, not the bits that I've done, but other bits as well. But yeah. he's just such an amazing character and energy and funny. He, he, I think he's a genius, like in terms mm. of just even without the music, but add in the music. And uh, I got to do an album with him and my, um, uh, with for Fancy with my friend Topher Brown in Nashville, which we recorded over a period of about a year, mostly in Nashville, back and forth here, called Southern Curiosity. And it was just like, it was kind of this sort of like swampy, gospely, Americana pop. I don't know, we didn't know what was going on, but it just, it, there's some moments on that record I'm super proud of. And Fancy it's, is amazing. It's, it's all those things, but it's almost like, I feel, and this, you probably won't take this the right way, but I feel like it's almost your version of ELO. No, no, I'll, 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 I'll take that all bloody day. <laughs> it just, it's just so like, I can just hear you all over that record. Yeah, no, and it was fun. It, it, we recorded it as a studio that I use a lot in, in East Nashville called Battle Tapes. Right. And run by a good friend of mine called Jeremy Ferguson. And it's just, it's such a vibe. Yeah. And there is stuff everywhere, like B3 organs and drum kits and like marching band stuff and yeah. like synths and it's it's and and on the surface it looks like it's a bit chaotic but it's everything works and everything's plugged in yeah and so i think that comes across in the sound of that record um and it, i also where i recorded um lucy silvis's ego album before that and it's just you're in a room where you're like oh shit can i can i just try that guitar and, yeah. I, and that's or whatever it might be or can i hit that gong at the back of the thing yeah and i think that that informs the sound of, of both those records but with, with and with fancy yeah i mean and he's he's got a great new song out at the minute um with casey musgraves uh, yeah. blue blue dream baby which is awesome and it's a bit more pop yeah but i'm just a fan of what he does and we we did some writing a few weeks ago in nashville hopefully some of that will sort of see the light of day soon as well but it's just yeah he's just a, a unbelievable energy and i think uh, he's destined for, for great things something 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 great is going to happen it I've will absolutely out. happen it actually happen i also love that it took nearly 50 years for someone to write a follow-up to the devil went down to georgia which is what you did with <laughs> yeah. Carter faith i yeah, mean was that it. the intention <laughs> that was the intention and I'll, I'll 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 admit my ignorance even though i've been going to nashville for a long time i wasn't completely sort of au fait or familiar with the uh is it charlie daniels yeah. but, uh, the original yeah. song but yeah. it was explained to me very clearly and very immediately um, and I wrote that with with Topher, who I did the fancy record with, and uh, another writer called Lauren Hungate, uh, who's yeah. a brilliant um, up and coming. Well, say up and coming. She's she's there, writer in Nashville, and with Carter. And it was just fun. It was a classic Nashville session. It was fast. We were done in like an hour. Went to have some lunch, like played a bit of stuff after lunch, and then just sort of didn't think about it. Yeah. But then th those songs tend to sort of find find their way. Yeah, no, it's, it's it's fantastic. So just just before we we finish, and I've I've missed out a bunch of stuff. I mean, there's there's like, if anyone gets chance, please go check out them um, specifically Biblical by Callum Scott, which I had really really adored. Oh, cool, and Thank you. Um, and the Lily Moore. Now I now I know. So I think Lily's such a huge talent, and I hope yeah, she you know, is. That, yeah, that she, comes back. She's to awesome. Um, but you always wanted to be in a band. You always wanted to have your own band. You had one with the bonfires, and now you have reunion. Um, yeah, how are you enjoying that? I'm, I'm loving it. It's it's kind of a um, it's a great vehicle to sort of do uh, what I, I mean. I can do it when I'm writing with another artist or another writer, but it's just like I go 
I, I catch up with my, my buddy Elliot James, who's an amazing friend and brilliant producer. And we just, we chat, we have a cup of tea. I play some stuff. I sort of warble a bit. <laughs> and then he does his thing. I do my thing. And I, I try and chisel a song out of the, the warbling. Uh, we do that together. And it's a great outlet. Um, but I don't know what, you know, it's, it's just, it's just atmospheric sort of landscapes, I guess, um, which always, it sounds a bit more pretentious than, than it's intended to be. But we, what I often find actually with, with artists both here and in the States is they're like, Oh, I really like that reunion stuff. Like, can we do a bit of that? And it's so weird to hear that because it's not like it's like blowing up the charts, but it's just, it's a nice, it's become quite a nice calling card for me. And I get to sing a bit. Admittedly, it's all affected <laughs> quite heavily, but um I, i'm really proud of that stuff and we've got a few really strong nice different songs in the tank as well that will come out over the next few months yeah and it's it's fun just to sort of do something without having to think like what's it for and would they say that sort of thing which often but, is the case. but also you know you say about blowing up the charts i mean i do think there is a whole level it's a we've had this conversation before about this about the perception of success and what success is and the mm. charts doesn't really mean anything anymore so i think you know, unless you're going to, unless you're going to include, um, you know, sync stuff or, yeah. you know, or actually ticket sales. Yeah. I don't think the charts really kind of means anything. And actually you could walk down certainly, you know, my high street and ask a hundred people about Bon Iver and they would never have heard of him yet. No, they, they wouldn't. He, well, you um, would put on, you could put on a, sh a show in, you know, five massive arenas and he'd sell yeah. them all out. No, you would. And that, that's, you know, that is an interesting time for yeah music in general, especially for the kind of the, I guess, the 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 more unknown or sort of lower mid-level artist. If you're a big artist and you can do the arena gigs and do all the stuff, then you're, you're, you're good, you're golden. Yeah. But to there's so much new music coming out every day that it's like... Um, how how do you cut through? And I think the the trick now actually is to not try and cut through and just just do something you're really proud of, and then hopefully someone will connect with it emotionally and they might pass it on to someone else. And it will actually weirdly be as organic as it perhaps used to be. It just it's just a bit of a different way up the mountain. But I just I'm trying to just do things every day that are like. You know, I, I joke sometimes. I say like, "Yeah, my music's like off the charts," <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but you know, it, it sometimes can come out the wrong way. But um, as as it's intended to. But I think you've got to just like like here in this studio complex here. There's like a couple of mates. I'm, I'll share this room with a buddy of mine called Jack Leonard, who's an amazing writer and producer. And we all, we're all just mates, and we're just like, let's just do a song and let's make it as good as we can, and then hand it in to whoever and then do another one mm. and not worry about who's it for or where's it going to go or like how, what's the point? Because if you do that, that's a, that's a slippery slope, I think, uh, especially that, with where things are at. Absolutely. It's really weird. I often end these things asking for advice, but you've just given the best advice as well, I think. And, and also I do think that you, you I've don't, I've never heard you do anything that doesn't have a, an emotional connection to it. And I think that's, oh, thank you that's extraordinary in this day and age to actually, you know, and maybe you have done them and maybe they haven't come out or maybe you've just, no, I'm, sure, I'm sure I have. I, think <laughs> I, just, I just haven't not, sent them to you. No, and no. I think I, I try and make everything that I do just, or anything that I'm part of just have some emotional value to it. Even if it's like a two minute, like 
bop as people might say like yeah. just what's you know where's is there is there an emotional that feeling of that thing of redemption of like i don't know, i chased that i was i was talking with my uncle the other day because he's, he used to work in the film industry and we were talking about the film coda mm. and i made the major error of watching that on a plane um, and i had like a couple of glasses <laughs> of wine Ooh. and i was I was in trouble. I was yeah, in big trouble. Like but we might have like emergency landing. <laughs> and but that film to me, there's just so you know for any anyone listening who hasn't seen it. But it's just that that to me has is so beautifully crafted and so simple and well executed. But it's got heart to it, and that's all I really want from uh, any music that I listen to, whether I'm part of it or if I'm listening as a as a as a punter. That's you just want to. You want to be moved, basically. Mm. Even if it's a dance song, like I want to feel, I want to cry dance to it. I don't want to just dance. Basically. Yeah, basically, yeah. that's what. That is that's the goal. I think. I think we should definitely give a warning that if anybody's on a plane, do not watch Coda. No, I mean it, it was it was a problem. I've I've watched a couple of films on planes next to our dear friend Tom Meadows once, uh, where he's been emotion uh, emotionally uh, charged at the end yeah. of uh, one of the, and it's. I actually had a song about uh, that I'd written with an artist called George Cosby called "I Only Ever Cry on Planes," and it's it's to that point. It's like why are things so much more emotive? And we kind of had our own theories within the song about you know you're leaving somewhere and heading somewhere, and there's emotion within that inherently, and maybe you're drunk, uh, the altitude, all these other things, and and traveling is momentous in its nature, I guess. But watching Coda on a plane was. A rookie mistake, basically. Well, because the funny thing about that film is you are completely, when you know the premise of it, which you do when you start, you are completely going to accept the fact that at some point, yeah. something is going to happen that will be sad or that will be emotional. Or make you, but you're, you feel like you're prepared for it. Yes. Until it, because it kind of sneaks up on you. Yeah, it does sneak up. And that's that's the genius because you it's it's actually quite, it's beautifully simple. Mm. But, and you like you said, you know exactly what's coming. You know pretty much how it's going to happen. And I've watched it four times now because I thought, well, I'll get to Nashville. I'll watch it with my girlfriend and I'll probably be fine because I've seen it already. I was even worse. Yeah. <laughs> I, was <just> like, <laughs> I just couldn't get my shit together. And, um, and then I watched it again and I wasn't great. And then my dad, um, who lives away away from me now, I, I told him, I, made, I didn't watch it with him. But I told him, we've got to watch this. So he, he, he watched it and he phoned me at the end. He was like completely inconsolable. And then that night... He watched um, a film called Mr. Holland's Opus oh with Richard Drivers. So I was like, what are you doing? <laughs> and I, I know I'm, I'm showing not only my age here, but the fact that I'm basically melodramatic and cheesy. But the end of that film. Oh, my God. It, well, it's the is, same is, thing. Oh, but like it's, it's the same it's the, subject. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's that thing for me again. And it gets me. And I'm not saying I'm alone in this, but it's that redemption of like, it was worth it. What you've what you've struggled with. I mean, in that film in particular, and I try and I try and feel this when I write something or when I hear something. That's what I want, and that's some of my favorite things. That musically, they have that that theme of like that payoff, and and that that film, Mr. Holland's Opus, at the end, the sort of denouement of that, yeah, is all about his life and this this body of work, this song that he wanted to hear. Yeah, and it happens in that way. And I, I like once again not giving it away to any listener, but I, I cannot cope at the end of that film. No, 
Um, I basically need to get help. I think yeah. that's what we've established in this in this chat. <laughs> we both do, John. But also, both <laughs> both films, I think, probably have a, a, a on on people like us. It's a double whammy because the, the idea that someone could not hear music yes. is even yeah. more heartbreaking. Like, is really yeah. heartbreaking anyway. But then for people like us, no, oh, no, it's, it's, it's just it's, it's, it's everything. It touches all the uh, it ticks all of the oh, the emo yeah. boxes. We, should, yeah, we, should just, we need to. We're, I know we're we're both welling up. We need to get together and <laughs> have some pizza and watch some soppy movies and get Tom Meadows oh, rounds. And oh, um, yeah, no, it'll be, it'll be great. We'll do, we'll, we'll do that. We'll do that. Please, I'd love that. A- absolutely. All right, John. Thank you so much for chatting to me. Um, I'm sure you've got loads of stuff coming up, and you're not going to be able to talk about any of it. But what I love more than anything is that you said 20 years. It's been over 20 years. Your joy and love for what you do is as good, if not as the best it's ever been. There's no sign of you stopping. There's no sign of you getting bored. I, I hope so. I'm, I'm trying, but we're, we're all, you know, congratulations to everything you're doing, Steve, as well. Your your work ethic and the standard, the level of stuff that you're a part of is always world-class. And it's I'm very uh, humbled to, uh, to know you, but also privileged to be on this podcast. I, I appreciate you tracking me down <laughs> I know it took a minute <laughs> no, it's wonderful it's wonderful um, alright cool. and well yeah I'm hopefully we'll, we'll uh, raise a glass soon at a, mm. a concert somewhere we definitely will that's very kind of you to say that alright I will uh, see you soon yeah let's see you soon for pizza and sad movies perfect sounds great cool <laughs> see you later cheers bye cheers <laughs>